episode 51 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about all things relating to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot. And I'm Kelly. All right, Dermot, I have tried for two years now to think of a good intro question to ask you, and all I've come up with is, how are you or what's good? But I've got one today. Yes. What's your favorite vampire story? <clears throat> Do we include movies? Sure. Uh, Salem's Lot, the 1980 TV show. All right. It's a bit made for TV movie. Scariest vampires ever. Keep listening and you'll find out why this is relevant because today we're talking about vampires. Do you know that there are vampires in Ulysses? Nope. They're in the Bible, all right, but I don't know. Oh, really? I didn't know they no, were in the Bible. No, I don't know. I just made that up. Oh, okay. But somebody can find them. Well, I know that you knew there were <laughs> vampires in Ulysses because of the art that you did for this episode. Oh, yeah. So maybe you forgot. It's been a while. It is. Yeah. <laughs> So could you tell us a little bit about the art? So for any new listeners, we mostly talk about Ulysses and then Dermot illustrates something related to each section that we talk about. And if you'd like to see his art, you can see it at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. So he's going to tell us a little bit about the art for today's episode. Very quick and dirty. So I thought, well, vampires, James Joyce, he's had a big, huge head. He's a bit like Nosferatu. So I did a sort of James Joyce Nosferatu mm -hmm. design and... Uh, with the greatest possible respect. Yeah. I, I think he, he would in, in, enjoy it, actually. I hope so. Yeah, I, I love this one, too, because when you look at it, it looks like it was done with felt-tip markers, but mm -hmm. it was it's entirely made of pixels. Yep, yeah. I use a drawing tablet mm -hmm. and natural media brushes on that. We are a blog as well as a podcast, so we do have a new post-up we'd like you to check out. It's kind of old new at this point, but I really worked hard on it, and I'm super proud of it. So if you haven't had time to check it out. Uh, it's entitled Leopold Bloom's Journey Through the Orient. Do you remember what that was about, Dermot? Um, I think it was, that was the one where Bloom was imagining like minarets and flying carpets and a thousand and one nights, all that kind of stuff. More or less, yeah. more or less. Mm. As he's walking through Dublin in 1904. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, check it out. I think it's really great. And you can see Dermot's fantastic artwork for that. We've got some shout-outs today. First of all, we have some lovely folks who donated to our podcast. If you'd like to donate, you can do so at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. You'll find a little PayPal donate button in the upper right-hand corner. And we'd like to thank this week... Paul Ringel, Roy Smith, and Simon Hunt for their very generous donations. All are greatly appreciated. Mm -hmm. And Simon left us a little message I thought was nice. Discovered B&B &B at the end of May and have to thank you for how much you have enriched my understanding of Ulysses and my summer of reading and research. Hey, well, so he gets a stockpile like all you other people who've been here from the beginning <laughs> have to like wait two weeks. Yeah. So it's binge time, I guess. Yeah. So if you'd like to support us and you're able, we are happy if you drop us a few pennies at PayPal. It really helps us do things like the summer we overhauled our website. Of course, it always keeps us full of caffeine. Yes. If you would like to support us in a different way, please think about rating and s subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts. If you leave us a five-star review, we will read it on air so you can, you can feel like a celebrity. Mm. We really do appreciate it. Those do help us in the rankings and help people find the show. Yeah. So it's a really quick and easy way to help us out. All right. We've kind of gone through our opening here at a rocket pace today because there is so much to talk about in today's. I'd say this section that we're going to look at today has everything. It's got the Bible. It's got Hamlet. It's got vampires. It's got um, Latin. It's got dunking on Douglas Hyde, Ireland's first president. That jerk. <laughs> so we're just going to get straight into it. Dermot, take us away. A side eye at my Hamlet hat. If I were suddenly naked here as I sit, I'm not. Across the sands of all the world, followed by the sun's flaming sword to the west, trekking to evening lands. She trudges, schleps, trains, drags, tracines her load. A tide westering moon drawn in her wake. Tides myriad islanded, within her, blood not mine. Onyopa ponton, a wine-dark sea. Behold the handmaid of the moon. In sleep the wet sign calls her hour, bids her rise. Bride bed, child bed, bed of death, ghost candled. Omnus caro ad te veniet. He comes, pale vampire, 
through storm his eyes, his bat sails bloodying the sea, mouth to her mouth's kiss. Here, put a pin in that chap, will you? My tablets, mouth to her kiss. No, must be two of them. Gloom well, mouth to her mouth's kiss. His lips lipped and mouthed fleshless lips of air, mouth to her moom, oom, all wooming tomb. His mouth moulded issuing breath on speech. Ooh-ee-ah, roar of cataractic planets, globed blazing roaring. Way, away, 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 away. Paper, the banknotes blast them. Old DC's letter, here. Thanking you for the hospitality, tear the blank end off. Turning his back to the sun, he bent over far to a table of rock and scribbled words. That's twice I forgot to take slips from the library counter. Bravo, Dermot. All right, what are your thoughts? Jesus. Well, because I'm really clever, like, I know you about are. the wine dark sea being a Homeric reference. Because I read in one of Colin Wilson's books on the occult that some people think that the ancient Greeks couldn't see the colour red or they weren't somewhat mm -hmm. colourblind because it's such a weird way to describe the ocean because it's certainly not red. But I think they was talking about tonality rather than... Mm -hmm. There was some... I, I think that's a bit far-fetched now, you know, the idea that the Greeks couldn't see red. And oenophiles, so like my limited etymology as a, a, a wine lover. So oenopa ponton is probably Greek. Oh, that's true. Good job. Ta-da. Um, and it's just, the, again, the brain tumble, right? Um, he's suddenly wondering if I was naked here as I sit. Uh, like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> uh, let's see. I think she's Drudger Schleps. Is this, are we still with the the one on the beach or something? There's... Yes, this whole episode takes place him. We're, st we're still on Sandy Mount. On Sandy Mount. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, she, but... Who do you think she is? Who do we just talk about? The cockle pickers? Yeah, Lady still, Cockle yeah, Pickle. Lady, Lord and Lady, Lady Cockle, cockle Pickle. Yeah. Um, I think I said Cockle Pickle. <laughs> a wine dark sea, I think. So I was talking about the blood. The blood is the wine dark sea in that image, isn't it? Um, the handmaid of the moon. I don't know about that. Uh, Bridebed, childbed. So that's like your life going by. You know, you're, uh, you're conceived and you're born and then you're on your deathbed. And I guess a ghost candle is like a Catholic note as a... What do they call the candles? Uh, where you light a candle in memory of the dead. Votive. Votive candle, there um, you go. I don't know what omnis caro ad te veniat means. Omnis, I think, is everything. That's about my Latin dog. Um, <laughs> don't know who the vampire is. Um, we Varney the vampire, my, everyone's favorite 19th century vampire that wasn't plagiarized at all by Bram Stoker. Um, let's see. Mouth to her kiss, I wonder, is that... Uh, Sounds religious, that repetition there. I'm just guessing here. Um, you know, like in the mass, you know. And that's what that sounds like to me, anyway, mm -hmm. musically. So, um, and then final paragraph, the ooh, ee, ha, I don't know. It sounds like, you know, um, a foghorn. Uh, could be wrong. but uh, And I, I wasn't sure if way, 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 way is getting loud, like a Doppler effect, like it's getting oh. further away or not. Um, I would think it would get fainter because... The further you go with away, getting louder would feel for me would just feel weird. Could you, could you imitate what you think that would sound like? Getting louder? Well, no, with the Doppler effect. Oh, I did on like that. when I read it, like way, 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 way. It seems to okay, me like okay, okay. way of reading that. Kind of uh, echoey. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, the train. And I think that's <laughs> kind of. Right. Um, and he's called Daisy's letter, so he's like, yeah, get rid of this thing. I think he's in the post office now. I don't know. Is it? Thank you for that. I teared the blank end off. I'm, I'm not going to tell you anything till we get um, down. This is this is your this is Dermot's corner. It's like the mysteries of the post office. I'm afraid of post offices. They frighten me. Um, turning his back to the sun, like scribble words. Uh, it's twice I forgot to take slips from the library counter. Yeah, no. So that's about as much as I can glean from it. Okay, well done. Yeah. Well, let's break it down line by line because, as I said, there is an enormous amount of information hidden in this. Yeah, I guess so. First line here, a side eye at my Hamlet hat. If I were suddenly naked here as I sit, I am not. This is actually a pretty thrilling section because it's Stephen finally um, stirring to artistic action and claiming agency over his own identity. So he mentions his Hamlet hat, a side eye at my Hamlet hat. So we mentioned the cockle pickers are passing. Mm -hmm. They're kind of looking at, at his hat, oh. you know. 
Because if you remember back to Telemachus, he's still dressed in kind of French fashion. Yes. So they're probably looking like, who is this weirdo? Weird. Yeah. Yes. Do you remember what Buck Mulligan called his Hamlet hat? Oh, I forget them. The Latin Quarter hat. Mm. And by the um, illustration of the French Bohemian, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Or the, the yes. symbolist, the, the, the symbolist poet yeah. archetype. And it was like a very big, very crazy looking hat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it kind of looks similar to like... I think similar hats were kind of big in the 80s and have kind of come back in now. Mm -hmm. It's a bohemian look mm. of any... It's timeless, I guess. But Mulligan kind of teased him about it and, like, frisbeed his hat to him in the morning and said, here's your Latin Quarter hat, which Stephen didn't really like because I think Mulligan's insinuating that he's kind of a poser. Mm -hmm. He's a, a faux-hemian yeah. rather than a true bohemian. Yes. So Stephen is now claiming for himself his own role in his life and he's naming himself as Hamlet and Hamlet is someone who took on all the usurpers in his life so the usurpers in Stephen's life better watch out do you remember who he calls usurper in Telemachus you could probably guess if you don't know mm. Buck Mulligan oh well I would have guessed Mulligan but that was too obvious okay. <laughs> <laughs> next bit then so Stephen is claiming himself as Hamlet now. So he's, he's made this Protean change. Everything kind of shifts and changes throughout Proteus. Mm -hmm. He's gone from being, you know, sad Stephen in the Latin Quarter to a vengeful Hamlet. So he's taking on this Protean quality himself. So he's moved from a weak position of someone who's kind of bullied to reclaiming power mm -hmm. um, and ha in the form of Hamlet, right. a Hamlet figure. And I know you love Shakespeare, so there's a lot of Shakespeare oh, God. in this. Speaking of which, Stephen thinks, if I were suddenly naked here as I sit, I am not. So what does this mean? Could it mean he's, he's getting the side eye from the cockle picker? Maybe uh, Lady Cockle Picker is imagining Stephen in the nude? Maybe he feels like she's kind of undressing him with her eyes. The way I mean, he does with everyone else. Yeah, yeah I mean, she, he does imagine her, at least in her, <laughs> his imagination, she's uh, proteanly changed into a strolling mort with poor morals. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I thought naked means that Stephen has turned this corner as he sits here on this mole of boulders at the north end of Sandy Mount, and he's ready to start anew. Right. He, he decided, remember, he decided he's not going to return to the tower. Mm -hmm. So he, he's been divested of, of all his worldly possessions and he's just alone, naked in the world. Or it's maybe a Hamlet illusion since it comes right on the heels of him saying my, about his Hamlet hat. So let's look to Hamlet. Uh, in Act 4, Scene 7, Hamlet says to Uncle Claw Claw, very good. A reference to I, Claudius, <laughs> yes. there. You want you to read it? Yeah, I want you to read it because it's funny when you read it. <laughs> you shall know I am set naked on your kingdom. Tomorrow shall I beg leave to see your kingly eyes when I shall, first asking your pardon, thereunto recount the occasion of my sudden and more strange return. Okay, so what Hamlet means here is that he's arrived in Denmark without an army to meet Claudius. So he says, I am set naked on your kingdom. It means he's there unarmed to fight Claudius, um, who has married his mother after poisoning Hamlet Sr. Allegedly. It was never proven in a court of law. It was proven in the court of theater. <laughs> in this court of Scooby-Doo plotting. I, I want to know if you could actually poison someone by pouring poison into their ear. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've been wondering about that since I was a teenager, but this is not the forum to decide that. No. Uh, Twitter is the forum. Yes, the tweet me. Hamlet means that he's arrived in Denmark with an without an army to face Claudius. So Stephen acknowledges that he is not naked. So that means he will soon parlay with his own usurper, and he is coming armed. <laughs> So Proteus takes place around 11 a.m. And if you recall, Stephen is scheduled to meet with Mulligan around 1230. Mm -hmm. But Stephen won't be attending naked. He will be instead armed with the greatest weapon of all. Poetry. Oh, God. 
They tried that in World War One and it didn't work out very well. <laughs> it makes me think of that. There's a Monty Python where they wrote the world's funniest joke mm. that you would die laughing from. And there was a scene of a bunch of soldiers running, reading it in <laughs> German, and the German soldiers were just oh, dropping yeah. around. <laughs> okay. Uh, next. Across the sands of all the world, followed by the sun's flaming sword to the west, trekking to evening lands, she trudges, schleps, trains, drags, tracines her load. Pay attention to the shift in language here because there's nothing really on the surface level that indicates that Stephen is now beginning to write his poem. You have to kind of pick up on it because his language, though it's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, illusion and, and imagery and, and shifting realities throughout Proteus, this section I find becomes particularly poetic, metaphorical, and protean. A part of that is because we see these indistinct pronouns. It's hard to tell what their antecedent is. So, she trudges. Who is she? Cocklepicker, I would have thought. We think it's Lady Cocklepicker. So, he's watching them pass. They're kind of looking at, who's this nerd sitting here? Mm -hmm. Stephen is describing the movement of the Cocklepickers while combining it with imagery of heavenly bodies across the sands of all the world, followed by the sun's flaming sword to the west, trekking to evening lands. Mm -hmm. So this could be the sun, or as we'll see, the moon moving across the sky to the west, right? Followed by the sun's flaming sword. So it's, it's the moon. Uh, it's also drawing on some religious illusions we'll get to in a second, but he really leans on this image of the moon to symbolize womanhood. That's traditional, though. The moon yeah. would be the symbolic Absolutely. body of women and in classical yeah. mythology, and, yes. would, and the sun would be more male. Yes. Um, Joyce really likes this. There's a particularly beautiful section in Ithaca, the second-to-last episode, that was read beautifully by contributor Ellen Murphy for our Bloomsday episode, where Joy, I, I think it's one of the most beautiful parts in all of Ulysses where he likens uh, womanhood to the moon. Mm -hmm. um, it's, yeah, so it's, it's definitely a, a recurrent motif in Ulysses. And this is kind of where it first arises. What's interesting here is the images, the image of the passing cockle pickers and the moon, they start to kind of combine. She trudges, schleps, blah, 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 her load could be the cockle picker carrying her big bag of cockles. Mm -hmm. It could also be the moon like carrying its weight across the sky mm -hmm. through the heavenly spheres. It's kind of both. Like it doesn't have to be one or the other. And that really is kind of maximum protean quality here. Mm -hmm. they're, they're shifting subtly back and forth. You can't really tell one from the other. And it's because Stephen is beginning to work on his poem, which was described by one writer. It was one of the people who write in the Irish Times regularly about Ulysses. I want to say it was Terence Killeen, but I can't be sure because it's been a couple of years since I read it. But he described Stephen's poem as the only productive thing he does all day, <laughs> <laughs> which is that's yeah, accurate. If you disagree, uh, tweet or Facebook me. Okay. Across the sands of all the world, followed by the sun's flaming sword to the west, trekking to evening land. So it's, like you said, describing the track of the moon, it could be the, the cockle pickers who are kind of characterized as you know, itinerant gypsies traveling all around the world. But it's kind of both. This bit here with the flaming sword is interesting. Uh, some believe it is a reference to Genesis 3, 24, which Dermot's going to read for us. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the Tree of Life. So... You could see this as Stephen is maybe imagining these wandering cockle pickers traveling far enough to encounter such a site. They, they reach all the way to the ends of the earth. Mm -hmm. Evening lands, right? If you're trekking west, you know, I, I guess you could think about once you get all the way west, that's, that's where the evening is. Mm -hmm. But this was inspired by the lyrical drama Hellas by Percy Bysshe Shelley, the husband of Mary Shelley. Uh, he also wrote Ozymandias, so hmm. doing some poetic things there. So Stephen has been living in Mulligan's Omphalos, a.k.a. the Martello Tower, uh, long enough to have kind of the ancient Greeks stuck in the back of his mind. You hmm. remember Buck Mulligan urging hmm. him to... Hellenize her. Yes. Yeah. Also, um, there was a lot of drowning imagery, and of course Shelley famously drowned in 
also had a prophecy that he would die by drowning. Oh, I did Very not shortly know that. before he drowned, he was convinced he would die by drowning. And then about a few months later, within the year, he was gone. Mm. Very 33 or something, very young. That's very yeah. young. Yeah. All right, so this drama, though, is about uh, Greece, and it was written in the 1820s in support of Greek independence. And in line 1027, Shelley wrote the following. Let freedom and peace flee far to a sunnier strand and follow love's folding star to the evening land. All right. I've said it exactly the way he would have yeah. said it, too. We know if he's thinking about Hamlet hat, it's an allusion back to Latin Quarter hat. It, that is enough to get Buck Mulligan kind of kindling in his mind. So this reference to Greek, anything Greek kind of pulls back to Mulligan as well as the Hellenizer and the uh, master of the Omphalos. Mm. He's thinking a bit about that here, you know, that using that phrase, the, phrase, the evening land. Um, and this might seem like a bit of a tenuous connection, but Shelley does go on to write the following in line 1076. And you, Ulysses, leaves once more Calypso for his native shore. Right, and we are only a few pages from the end of this chapter, and the next chapter we meet Ulysses' own Ulysses, Leopold Bloom, in an mm. episode entitled Calypso. There might be some connection there. See here, she trudges, schleps, trains, drags, signs her load. This could be, like we said, Lady Cockle Picker in a bag of cockles, but it's also kind of the moon. So the Lady Cockle Picker is undergoing a protean change to a, a personified moon. It's poetic, man. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just poetics, right? Each entry in this parade of verbs means more or less the same thing. Stephen is trying to reach for just the right word in his poem. He's kind of running each one through his mind. Mm -hmm. Does she trudge? Does she schlep? Which sounds right? And as we recall, the art of this episode is... Philology. You are correct. So it certainly fits. Joyce himself attri attributed this, quote, crescendo of verbs to the, quote, irresistible tug of the tides shifting and changing. Of course, the moon causes the tides to shift. You are correct. Unless you're an idiot like Galileo who thought they just sloshed around. Okay, you know, Dermot. Another Dur of mine. Dermot has a lot of enmity Oh, I have a lot of my enemies. My enemies list is long. Yeah, if yeah. you want to argue with him about Galileo, uh, our <laughs> Facebook group is open. Please don't tag me in the post. <laughs> I have armies at my hand. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I think we, we've gotten through that. Okay. So we're seeing the, the cockle picker transform into the moon as a symbol of womanhood. A tide westering, moon drawn in her wake. Tides married islanded within her, blood not mine, oinopapantan, a wine dark sea. Here we see Joyce's irresistible, or perhaps ineluctable, tug of the tides in action. So tides are driven by the moon. Mm -hmm. Tide goes in, tide goes out, and never miscommunication. <laughs> but uh, here she shifts into algae's gray sweet mother, which is? The sea. Yeah. So the, the moon, the tide causer, mm -hmm. and the sea, the tide experiencer, are both s symbols of, of femininity. Mm. Water and bodies of water can also be symbols of the feminine. Mm -hmm. So here, though they act upon each other, which is which kind of becomes very ambiguous. So just as the cockle picker schleps her load of picked cockles up the strand, Mother Sea tracines her tidal load across her myriad islanded surface, right? All the islands are on the, on the, the surface or the back of the sea, mm -hmm. ebbing and flowing at the behest of the moon. So they, they work in concert with one another. Mm. It's kind of sexy. <laughs> um, so, however, Stephen is still kind of struggling against the tide of his own depressed psyche. So as we mentioned, uh, his allusion to Shelley's Hellenic verse was enough to uh, summon a vision of his least favorite Hellenist to mind. You correctly clocked Dermot that Oinopa Pontan, a wine dark sea, is a phrase cribbed from the Odyssey, but where does it ap uh, appear in Ulysses? Maybe the second or third page. Oh, okay. Very early? Yeah. yeah Who yeah. says it? 
in the mouth of Buck Mulligan. Was Buck it? Mulligan, yeah. yes. He uh, he quote uh, he he quotes it to Stephen and very early in te mm. Telemachus as he's telling Stephen to um, embrace the ancient Greeks. Mm. We can see here that even as he's trying to construct this this really elaborate imagery of the sea and the tide and womanhood, that he's still like there's there's Mulligan interference going on in his head. Right. Wine Dark Sea was also the title of one of Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander novels. All right. For. Patrick O'Brien freaks out there. <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm sure they appreciate the shout out. Shout outs are also appreciated. Um, yeah, and the, as far as the, the color goes, without getting too far into a, a tangent in an already packed episode, um, <laughs> ha, the, the language around color shifts a lot over time. The vocabulary that certain languages have for colors is not consistent across cultures, mm -hmm. and certain colors will enter color vocabulary will enter a language later than others. Right. So my favorite example of this is that in Japanese, the words for blue and green often overlap. So like if you're driving, you see akashingo, which is a red light, and you see aoshingo, which is a blue light. Mm. And sometimes I've, I would hear people refer to a green apple as a blue apple. Mm -hmm. And... I also heard farmer I knew in Japan say of her vegetables when they were turning green, she would describe them as aokunaru, which means becoming blue. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. So blue and green are, they don't necessarily follow the, the hard line set by, right. um, I can't remember which, if it were blue or green that came into Japanese later, but because there, there was a gap there's also kind of a perception gap. And it's not that Japanese people can't see both colors, it's their interpretation of which color is which yes. is culturally and linguistically determined. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's very strange. So the ancient Greeks, like their, their brains are pretty similar to ours. They could see the same colors that we could, yes. but how they interpreted them linguistically right. would have been different. Yep. So, yep. all right. Behold, the handmaid of the moon. So the sea personified is a woman takes on a different con connotation in this line. And that's because this idea of the handmaid of the moon is evoking the Annunciation. What is the Annunciation? Well, that's when uh, Archangel Gabriel, I think, appears to Virgin Mary and says, uh, you better get a little, little crib built for the manger. You have a little god baby inside you. Um, yes. <laughs> So, uh, as we see in Luke one thirty-eight, which Dermot's going to read. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so handmaid of the moon, handmaid of the Lord. I think there's some parallel mm -hmm. language there. So, while Mary is the handmaid of the Lord, the sea becomes the handmaid of the moon, controller of the tides. Right? Uh, so these two handmaids also share a deeper connection. So Mary has been associated with the sea since ancient times, sometimes referred to as Stella Maris in Latin, which means star of the sea. While the name Stella Maris likely originates from a mistranslation of the Latin, the name's kind of stuck. And to further our wordplay, the name Mary isn't all that far from words for the sea in several languages. So, mare, uh, I think Italian, mer mm -hmm. in French, and muer in Irish, mm -hmm. all kind of follow this form. These aren't a huge leap to the French word mer, which mm -hmm. means mother. Mm -hmm. And throughout Proteus, Joyce has played with the idea of the sea and the m and motherhood kind of flowing in and out, as well as horses, and a mare is a female horse or mother horse. Do you remember mm -hmm. um, Madeline the mare? Mm -hmm. Do you remember Madeline the mare? I'm not sure. She isn't a big player, but she does, she's on the for maybe the first page of Proteus. Okay. And interestingly, Stephen is uh, not too far from St. Mary of the Sea Church, uh, which used to be on the seashore, and now because of like landfilling and, and mm -hmm. stuff to extend Sandy Mount out. It's inland. But uh, Mary, St. Mary, Star of the Sea Church, plays a big role in the Nausicaa episode many, many, many pages from now. Okay. So 
That's what behold the handmaid of the moon means. All right. In sleep, the wet sign calls her hour, bids her rise. All right, get excited, Dermot. There's more Hamlet. All right. In act one, scene one, Horatio is discussing the dark portent of the appearance of a ghost outside the walls of Elsinore, recalling other such dread signs that appeared before Caesar's death in Julius Caesar. And I guess in real life, so read uh, Horatio's bit here. The grave stood tenantless and the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets as stars were trains of fire and dews of blood. Disasters in the sun and the moist star upon whose influence Neptune's empire stands was sick almost to doomsday with eclipse. So what's the moist star? The moist star. Jesus. The moist star upon whose influence Neptune's empire stands. What's Neptune's empire? Uh, the sea. Yeah. So what star, using maybe a bit of a pre-scientific... Oh, um, at the moon. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, the moon. The well, moist star. Yeah. Uh, upon whose influence Neptune's empire stands. So I think when we're seeing the wet sign or the, the moist star, mm. this is referring to the moon because there's a clear connection between the moon's action and the, the sea's action. Oh, and so there was a lunar eclipse. Yeah. <laughs> it was sick almost. To, yeah. An eclipse used to be a very bad mm. uh, sign. Mm. Where there was a, a solar eclipse here in Oregon a few years ago. Everybody was kind of excited for it. And mm -hmm. I had a, a, a student from Saudi Arabia who said he, he found it very peculiar that we were like super excited about this because in Saudi Arabia, it's a very bad sign. Yeah. So it was really remarkable, too. I, went, I was outside. It was 99.8% totality. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, 0.2% mm -hmm. of a lot is still a lot. It was mm -hmm. very hard to look at the sun. But I looked straight overhead and uh, I saw Venus like right overhead. Oh, that's you'll, cool. you'll never see Venus overhead ever again mm -hmm. in your life. And apparently the level of sunshine was about the same as you would see on Saturn if you were on Saturn's mm -hmm. moon Titan. So you could still walk oh. around, but it was, it was weird. The, yeah, the, the, yeah the birds it was a weird quiet. light. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, moist star. Yeah. It's describing an eclipsed moon. I, the wet sign here in sleep, the wet sign calls her hour bids her rise. So that, that's, I think, describing the moon affecting the ebb and flow of Neptune's empire, the sea. Mm -hmm. um, but his thoughts here slide into death imagery, followed by the lines of the poem that he'll fine tune this afternoon. So I think, too, because we're talking about, you know, this idea of Mother Mary and the Annunciation and this kind of wordplay on mother and sea, now, the other thing that Stephen is constantly thinking about, which is his mother's death, mm -hmm. is starting to bubble up in his head. And that brings us to this next line. Bride bed, child bed, bed of death, ghost can candled, omnis caro ad teveniet. So, naturally, Stephen can't avoid dark thoughts of his guilt and grief over his mother's death. He can't stop thinking about his mother. He can't stop thinking about Buck Mulligan. Mm -hmm. He's really in a bad way. Bed of death, ghost candled echoes Stephen's nightmare. Do you remember his nightmare from oh, Telemachus? Yeah, it's a horrible one, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where he dreams of his mother's phantom coming to him, a ghost candle to light her agony. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure that's directly connected. It's he, also Homeric to um, Ulysses sees his mother's ghost, which mm. for her three times in his hands through her. Okay. Um, the Latin. So... Omnis caro ad te uh, means all flesh will come to thee. And this phrase also originates in the Bible. It's in Psalms 65, 1 through 2, which Dermot's going to read. To the chief musician, a psalm and song of David. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Sion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Thank you, Dermot. So, one interesting little aside here, we do see Zion, spelled as Sion, S-I-O-N, which you might remember from Stephen's description of Kevin Egan, where he says, they have forgotten Kevin Egan, not he them, remembering thee, O Sion. Mm -hmm. So, this psalm is of interest. So, unto thee all flesh shall come is, I mean, you know, death. Mm -hmm. where, where do we all end up eventually? Eaten by worms. Yup. So this psalm is also used as the introit of a Latin requiem mass. 
So an introit is like an introductory song you'd hear at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, you can hear it in Mozart's Requiem. So I'll put that a little YouTube video of that in the show notes. Maybe we can add a little bit of that to the outro as well. This Requiem Mass then is performed in the, re the remembrance of the dead. So it's something Stephen probably would have heard at his mother's Requiem Mass. It's, yeah, it goes well with the bed of death, ghost candled. There's a lot to be said about this line. It does show, as you mentioned, the progression of life mm -hmm. that can happen in one bed. You know, bride bed, child bed, bed of death. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this Latin line ties it to remembrance of the dead and death, which makes it the perfect opening line to his poem. He comes, pale vampire, through storm his eyes, his bat sails, bloodying the sea, mouth to her mouth's kiss. So this is really Stephen's poem taking shape. I think a lot of this is stuff that Stephen's considering for his poem. But this part will appear again in Ulysses, so it gets a little bit of an extra emphasis by me. So he comes. Who do you think he comes? Omnis caro ad te veniet. Is that death? Maybe? Yeah, yeah. So he comes, pale vampire, through storm his eyes, his bat sails bloodying the sea. It sounds like the, the cover to like a, a heavy metal album. Mm. Uh, mouth to her mouth's kiss. Her, who is her, I think her for a long time was the sea mm. or the moon. And I think it's it's really describing death coming and taking mm. his mother. Yeah. So knowing that our pale vampire is preceded by a line from a Requiem Mass. Yeah, it's, it's death personified um, sailing on his bat-winged ship on a, <laughs> a bloodied sea. All flesh will come to thee, meaning we will all meet death one day. Uh, so Stephen's vision of death is infused with a bit of, of gothic horror here. Vampiric presence blooding the seas with a bat-winged ship to come kiss her. Stephen has already been ruminating on death this morning in the form of his mother's angry ghost. He thought about that hypothetical drowning man. Mm -hmm. Remember that bit? Yep. Um, that he wouldn't be able to save. That leads us back to when he was talking about John Milton's Lycidas and Nestor, which mm -hmm. is also about a drowning victim. Mm -hmm. So mouth to her mouth's kiss. This could be a reference to the death of Stephen's mother. That seems pretty reasonable. Transformed by death into a ghoulish chewer of corpses, as Stephen calls her. It fits with this idea of a vampire's kiss, transforming a person into a monster. A uh, vampire themselves that lives on the blood and flesh of the, the living. It kind of underscores Mulligan's description of Stephen's mother as beastly dead, mm. transformed into a ghoul in her afterlife. So, right, and that beastly dead really does become literally true here if she is now a monster hungry for the f living flesh. And, I mean, Ulysses comes before the era of, like, sexy, sympathetic vampires, and your angels and your Edward Cullens and whatnot. Uh, probably not the ones from Salem's Lot, because they look no, kind of gross. they're terrifying. In Stephen's Nightmare, his spectral mother is beastly, uncannily dead. She's not like, she's not like the Twilight vampires. Mm. It's likely, though, that Stephen's image of vampires would have been colored by the Twilight of its day, which was... Not Farney the Vampire. Not Farney the Vampire, a much more famous one. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Which was published in 1897. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very recent, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the portrayal of Dracula, so we're going we're gonna, to gonna dunk on Dracula a bit here, which actually is a, is a good novel. Like, it's, it's fun to read. I have, after researching this little bit, I, I found my enjoyment of it dampened because the portrayal of Count Dracula was influenced by anti-semitism basically um which we'll get into that a bit so it's kind of kind of been a bummer for me there but uh i think i it's it's thought that stoker was heavily influenced by the medieval legend of the wandering jew do you remember the wandering jew yes he was Nestor? the man who de denied christ at the crucifixion and was cursed to live forever 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, in some versions he mocked Christ or mm -hmm. he was just kind of not nice to, to Jesus. And so now he is an ageless, landless wanderer throughout mm -hmm. the world. Which is suffering. like a metaphor for the Jewish people because mm -hmm. of uh, blood libel. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's anti-Semitic, yeah. as we said. Yeah. Yeah. So, and if you think about the characterization of Dracula, there are a lot of anti-Semitic tropes built into it. So he's a, an all-powerful foreigner who comes to England uh, to manipulate and corrupt the virtuous young people mm -hmm. who live there and manipulate them into carrying out his nefarious deeds, scared of crosses, mm -hmm. And he is literally sucking the life out of otherwise healthy young English people. Yeah. Uh, what was it Mr. Deasy said? What's the quote from Mr. Deasy? England is in the hands of the Jews. Wherever they gather, they eat up the nation's vital strength. Vote Brexit. I added those two words. Yeah. So, that brings us to Leopold Bloom, who is the main character of Ulysses and a Jewish man and who we're going to meet in a few pages once Calypso begins. So perhaps subconsciously inspired by his prophetic dream, Stephen is once again foretelling his meeting with Leopold Bloom by this mention of a vampire. Hear me out. Let's fast forward almost to the end of the book to Circe, where Stephen has been knocked out cold in the streets of Nighttown by an English soldier. Uh, it's Mr. Bloom who comes and helps him up. He leans down, trying to rouse him, nearly mouth to mouth, and Stephen's first words upon seeing Bloom are, who? Black Panther, vampire. So, and previously in Aeolus, while Stephen is still working out the phrasing of his poem, he had switched from vampire to phantom, but Bloom's presence provokes a spontaneous utterance of vampire. Mm. So I think Bloom's vampirism is a comment on his Jewishness, he may not drink blood literally, but Bloom is regarded as a racial outsider by his peers, a foreigner in his own city, and at least a bit suspicious as a result. And he's ethnically Hungarian. Transylvania was once part of Hungary. Mm -hmm. And Stephen, we know for all his open-mindedness and worldliness, is not totally immune to the anti-Semitic views around him. There are several scenes in Ulysses where he... he, ha he Kind of has anti-Semitic views. One is the his memory of the the, the traitors at the in Paris, the Jewish traitors. Mm -hmm. Another in Ithaca is he recites this very anti-Semitic song to Bloom called "The Jew's Daughter." Mm -hmm. It's a very kind of oh. WTF moment, yeah. but you know it means that Stephen, for all his his big thinking, is still still kind of has that. Um, small-mindedness mm -hmm. about him that's shared by some of his peers. Um, and at the end of Ithaca, Stephen is unwilling to stay the night at the Bloom's house and instead chooses to wander off into the night. Is he uncomfortable taking shelter in a vampire's lair? Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of sort of homophobia or biphobia in the whole Stokerian vampire mythos as well because Dracula beguiles young women and young men alike with his eyes and his mouth, which are both kind of sexual body parts. Mm -hmm. And then he transforms them into a demonic creature like himself. So if you believe that, you know, being gay is contagious, <laughs> you might think that. Uh, you might see that connection. Jewish men are often stereotyped as feminized or nebbish, like Bloom certainly is. He literally turns into a woman under the spell of Bellicoe in a night town. And so per perhaps there's some homophobia on Stephen's part. He suspects this feminine Bloom's kindness of having a, mm. another kind of implication. Right. And he says himself, here, put a pin in that chap, will you? My tablets, mouth to her kiss. No, must be two of them. Bloom well, mouth to her mouth's kiss. Right, so he's he's gotten to this this part where he says mouth to her mouth's kiss. Mm, is that right? Should it be mouth to her kiss? No, you need two of them. Glue them well together. Like he's just saying it. It ties that uh, it ties that phrase together nicely. Um, so this passage, whether it should be mouth to her kiss or mouth to her mouth's kiss, he, Stephen chooses the latter for now. Uh, and this passage ends up being a bit of a Joycean controversy. So the line mouth to her mouth's kiss sounds 
quite a bit like the final line of the final stanza of the song My Grief on the Sea, as recorded by, du by Douglas Hyde in his book Love Songs of Connacht. So he, he went to the west of Ireland, where you would find the province of Connacht, and he collected uh, Irish language songs from the people living in the rural areas there and published them, sort of Irish on one page and English on the other. So you can see this, this song, My Grief on the Sea, in its original, which he transcribed from an old woman, and the English, which he personally translated. Um, could you read his translation? And my love came behind me. He came from the south, his breast to my bosom, his mouth to my mouth. So the song in question tells the story of a man returned from the dead to embrace his lost love once more. Hmm. If, if I recall, I read it a while ago. I think he like died at sea. And then this is like, you know, he's, he's returning for one last kiss from his lost love. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy to kind of see the similarities from in this last line from My Grief on the Sea, his mouth to my mouth, and the line that Stephen composes. And it's kind of highlighted by the fact that he lingers over whether or not to say mouth once or twice. Mm -hmm. And so some people see this as Joyce just blatantly cribbing from Hyde, just like stealing his verse. Because mm -hmm. maybe th this isn't that well known of a song. Maybe no one would notice. Mm -hmm. So the question we have to answer now is, did Joyce just rip off Hyde's work and present it as his own, showing his literary avatar composing another poet's verse on the seashore? Mm -hmm. Uh, it wouldn't be without precedence. Ulysses contains other verse that Joyce didn't write mm. and didn't really give credit to, like um, the the joking G ballad of joking Jesus mm -hmm. was a, a poem that Gogarty had sent to him, right. and then he put it in and didn't give Gogarty any credit. Mm -hmm. So I mean, he could have done this, and in fact, the similarity to Hyde's verse wasn't pointed out until the nineteen forties, and it was not pointed out by Joyce. Someone else picked up on it. Mm -hmm. We know that Joyce was familiar with the work of Hyde because Joyce openly criticized his work, thinking that Hyde's verse was very poor verse indeed. And so it's no coincidence if you are a multiple reader, multiple times reader of Ulysses, you probably recognize the title Love Songs of Connacht because that is the book that the very dorky Haynes is just dying to get his hands on. Okay. Um, so he's, the, the breadcrumb trail is yeah. Yeah. The book is mentioned by name in Ulysses, okay. and it's portrayed as a must-have for a naive English buffoon mm -hmm. who is just in love with Ireland and all things Irish and the yeah. Irish language. So that I think alone having Haynes so interested in this book shows that Joyce thought it was kind of... He'd read it. Yeah, he'd read it, and he was not impressed. Yeah. He found uh, Hyde to be a bit of a hack. And so he had another hack in love with Hyde. That is a very Joycean burn, mm. I would say. Uh, so if we take Hyde's English translation of My Grief on the Sea as an example, it's kind of not hard to see Joyce's point. So I went and found it, and I'll make sure to put a link to it. It's, it's available on archive.org. Um, you can read, you know, it's just been scanned, and you can read his Irish and English so my translation of the original Iris verse reads more literally as in English, my lover came to my side, shoulder to shoulder and mouth to mouth. Th those are what the words say. I don't have the Irish here in front of me, otherwise I'd read that poorly for you as well. Uh, the Irish word for south does not appear in the original, hmm. uh, which means that Hyde added that detail in translation. Right. And it seems to me that he added it purely for rhyme. Right. And, and that it has no greater meaning. What he came from, he came, my love came from behind, he came from the south. Mm -hmm. What does that even mean? Yeah. Think about it. What does that mean he came from the south? And uh, there's no metaphor to it. There's no symbol. There's really nothing poetic. It's just that mouth and south rhyme in English. Mm. So later in Aeolus, we see Stephen kind of grappling with the same problem, trying to reconcile the line of the, the rhyme of mouth and south in his own poem. And he says to himself, is the mouth south some way? Or the south a mouth? Oh, he's taking the piss. He is definitely, yeah. So Stephen may have cribbed a bit of Hyde's verse. Um, he clearly has a lot of literary material just 
clattering around in his head. Mm -hmm. um, but over the course of the day, he improves it. Mm -hmm. He writes a different poem. Right. So I think this oh, is Jesus. Joyce's way of saying That's that vicious. Hyde's work is so weak that even a naive 22-year-old Stephen or Joyce could have written better than that whole South mouth thing. Right. And that's the interpretation I favor. Hmm. And it makes a lot more sense to me knowing Joyce's personality. Yeah. He would not be above doing that. He could have just ripped it off, but because he keeps kind of like, you know, hanging a lantern on it, mm -hmm. it, it it's and and has the dweebiest character in love with Hyde's work. I think that it is a yeah. poetry burn. Oh gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> And but that uh, book too, we saw it in the Yates exhibition in the yes, National Library. Yes, 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 yes. I think I got really excited. I was like, that's yeah. a new love songs of God. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 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 It'll come back. We'll, we'll hear more about that. And uh, Douglas Hyde was the first president of Ireland. Correct. Yeah. yeah and who also used a, a Gallicized name. He go by Douglas and he too. Yeah. And he was Protestant. Yeah. Like he wasn't mm -hmm. Catholic. Back a lot then. of these, yeah. a lot of the revivalist people were. I yeah. believe Lady Gregory yeah. and Yates were both. They were from an Anglo background. Yeah. Yeah. We're in the home stretch here. His lips lipped and mouthed, fleshless lips of air, mouth to her moom, oom, all wooming tomb. So this is Stephen's searching for a rhyme. Mm. There are many, many uh, analyses of what this means, of you know, the the connection, this perfect loop of, of womb and tomb, of birth and death. But uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, Stephen just playing with rhymes. Mm. It does nicely encapsulate, though, Stephen's intermingling thoughts of death, motherhood, um, as he transforms his grief into poetry, the protean effect of his time on the strand taking hold. His mouth molded, issuing breath, unspeeched. And now this ooh-ee-ha, I think, is... Roar of cataractic planets globed, blazing, roaring way away, way. There are so many very deep in interpretations of this, um, but what he told Frank Budgeon is that uh, this is Stephen making speech for the rocks in the water. Mm -hmm. That's what their 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 speech would sound like. Okay. And it, their sound, the sound of the, the rocks and the water on the beach then, seems to mirror the, the roar of the planets in space. Mm. Now, nerds, I don't need to hear how there's no sound in space because there's no air. Uh, I hear people complain about, you know, the Star Wars ships couldn't really make sounds because there's no air in space. And actually, in classic Star Trek, there's no explosion okay. noises. All right. Much better. Well, the roar of cataractic planets, so these planets turning around in the spheres, roaring way, away, away. So mm -hmm. as below the, the sand and the surf roars, so above the planets roar as well. So I think it's meant that the that his little microcosm here is mimicked in the, the macrocosm of the spheres, mm -hmm. which really adds a, a grandiosity of his uh, giving speech to the waves and the rocks. I might be able to find an audio file of the sound of Saturn by the Cassini spacecraft. They turned the radio waves as I moved through the mm -hmm. magnetos or the magnetic field into audio. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw a video of it playing. And when they played it, like you could, it was like, and it just sounded really. It sounds like a like a like an ultrasound. Oh, it was it was unreal. And then you could feel the rooms go very quiet, <laughs> like when they heard it, because it All was right. something out of a very scary movie. Well, we'll, we'll hear, be able to hear then Stephen's four-worded wave speech. Um, yeah, uh, pass it on. If you can get it to me in yeah. the next uh, couple of days, I'll put it in the <laughs> show notes. Although I think I'll still play us out with Mozart. Mm, yeah. All right. Paper, the banknotes, blast them. Old Deezy's letter. Here, thanking you for the hospitality. Tear the blank end off. Turning his back to the sun, he bent over far to a table of rock and scribbled words. That's twice I forgot to take slips from the library counter. So do you remember old Deezy's letter? Yeah, he's ranting about the foot and mouth disease of the cattle. Mm -hmm. He has a cure. And what does he want Stephen to do with this letter? Mail it. No, he wants him to deliver it by hand to the newspaper men oh, that he knows. Oh, that's right. Because his father, Simon, works with them. Right. So uh, Stephen has left Mr. Deezy's school. He's killing time now around the 11 o'clock hour before he has to meet Mulligan, mm -hmm. who's going to spend all his money on booze. And so he's kind of 
sitting on these rocks, coming up with this poetry. And he's gotten it to where he likes it. He wants to, to write it down. He's, he's sitting there making right. wave speech. He's, he's ready to write it down. So he's saying, paper, do I have blank, bank notes? No. Ah, and he reaches for an old Deezy's letter. And he reads, thanking you for the hospitality is the opening line to it. Tear the blank end off. <sighs> Tears it off. And then he turns around from the sun and leans over the rock like a table and writes down the stuff that he's come up with. And it's the vampire and the moon, moon, mouth to my mouth and all that. Yeah. And he says, oh, that's twice I forgot to take slips from the library counter. So if you can remember libraries before we had uh, digital catalogs, you would have this huge mammoth cabinet with drawers you'd pull out and you'd You'd have to find the book, you know, the number of the book, mm -hmm. and then you, there'd be always slips of paper there that you could write it down on. So then, when you go through the stacks, right, you you know, find your Dewey Decimal Number, or Library of Congress Number, or whatever system you're using. Mm -hmm. So he he's been taking those slips, uh, so he can write his poetry on it because he's dirt poor and can't uh. just buy a notebook. But he's saying, oh, it's twice I forgot. And uh, so later he will be in the, the library. So I can't remember if, if this little detail pops up again then or not. So he rips off the bottom of Mr. Deasy's letter and writes it. And he will, when he later delivers the letter to the newspaper men in Aeolus, he will be questioned as to why it's torn. Uh, but poetry waits not for cattle traders. Hmm. Do you have any closing thoughts for us? No, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I completely missed all that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, everybody does. <laughs> Like, what this is a is very this? difficult section, but it's uh, it's actually quite a pivotal section in uh, Stephen's journey because I, he he turns from pure thought to action. I think here, you know, we were talking about tatters and how tatters was inspiring him to the act of creation because he pisses on a rock. Mm -hmm. so this is Stephen's act of creation, and he's on a rock again. And he's on a rock, yeah. So, and it's it's after the point that he meet, he meets tatters that he um, he himself commits three acts of creation and this is the first before the end of Proteus right. and you have to keep your eye out for the other two okay. so when you're reading this the, the, the tatters bit and this are just a few paragraphs apart but because we read it over months very slowly it, it probably feels like there's miles between them but there really isn't mm. okay. well that's all we'll give you some info on how to get in touch with us in the outro and until then we'll play you out with some Mozart's Requiem and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. See you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. The PayPal donate button is at the upper right-hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. This helps more people find our show. And three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. 
You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's blooms, A-N-D, barnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.